0: You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is The Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is Wednesday, May 19th, and the big thing everybody's talking about today is the lineup for Lollapalooza 2021, which just dropped. And guys, I'm gonna be honest. I don't like how they design these music festival posters, right? You got all the big names at the top, and then the names get smaller and smaller and smaller, like I'm taking some sort of Spotify eye exam. And, and I'm sorry, like, I don't think the Foo Fighters need the help of the big, bold font. Like, if you ask me, all the bands should have the same size font because people don't go to music festivals just for the big headliners, all right? They go to music festivals to do drugs in a field. I mean, look at this thing. The print at the bottom of the poster is so small, it almost looks like Lollapalooza is trying to hide something. You know, like, w- wait a minute, zoom in. Ah, I knew it! Anyway, on tonight's show, Andrew Cuomo cashes in on COVID, Republicans are ready to move on from the insurrection that they caused, and if you're watching this at work, you might already be dead. Plus, Logan Paul and Oscar winner Barry Jenkins are joining me on the show. So, let's do this, people. Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show.
1: From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, This is The Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition.
0: All right, people, let's kick things off with a new study about jobs. Do you worry that your job is killing you? Well, first of all, congratulations on being basic. And second, you may be more right than you know.
1: The World Health Organization says working long hours is killing hundreds of thousands of people a year. It says the trend may worsen due to the COVID-19 pandemic. A new study showed 745,000 people died from stroke and heart disease associated with long working hours in 2016. Overall, the study concluded working 55 hours or more a week is associated with higher risk of stroke and heart disease. The study did not cover the period of the pandemic, but WHO officials say the surge in working remote and the economic slowdown may have increased the risks.
0: That's right, people. Working long hours could literally kill you. So the next time your boss asks you to work late, you go ahead and report him for attempted murder. Sheer. At the same time, it's kind of weird because working can kill you, but then you also need money to stay alive. Which is why it's so important to find the right balance. By stealing. And I know this study makes sense, but... I'm a little suspicious of the World Health Organization here, right? It feels like one of their researchers just got caught leaving early on a Friday. Oh, actually, I did a study on this, and if I don't go out for drinks right now, I could actually die. Yeah, Jägermeister specifically. By the way, don't you find it funny how everybody's response to this is that if working too long kills you, then we have to stop immediately? But when a study comes out that says drinking too much or eating too much desserts will kill you, then everyone is like, yeah, look, man, everything kills you. People worry too much. You gotta live a little. In fact, usually when we find out something could kill you, that just makes it cool and dangerous, you know? So who knows after this report, working long hours, that could become the new thing that only bad boys do. Young man, you can't be staying up all night working on spreadsheets. It's not good for you. Just try and stop me, old man. Now, if you're thinking about getting away from work with a nice trip somewhere, just know that getting on an airplane is about to get a lot more uncomfortable.
2: According to the Federal Aviation Administration, airlines might start weighing passengers before flights. The FAA says it's to ensure safety on aircraft. Air carriers may need to update the average passenger weight, which would be done through random voluntary surveys of passengers. According to the report, the weight of the average passenger and their carry-on bag will be raised from 170 to 195, an increase of
1: 12%.
0: Okay, wait, hold up, hold up. Airlines could start asking passengers for their weight before they get on the plane? No, 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 no. You cannot be doing this right after we've been stuck inside for a year eating nachos in our bathtubs. And please don't tell me, oh, they have to humiliate the people to keep the plane safe. No, how about they get Boeing to remove their automatic crash feature first? Then maybe I'll start doing some crunches. And also, I don't know if the airlines realize this, but it's not gonna work. You can't trust the measurements that people are gonna give you. You're gonna ask them their weight and you think they're gonna tell you the truth? Planes are gonna be crashing left and right. Ah, why are we going down? Everyone said they were doing keto. Ah, pull up, pull up. Because let's be honest, who's gonna volunteer for this, huh? The only people who want strangers to know their weight are the people who wanna show off their weight. Yeah, sure, of course you can weigh me. You know, I actually still fit into my college airplane seats. I will say, that this is, this is one of the stories that shows you how different America is from so many parts of the world. Because if you did this in Africa, the shame would be completely reversed. Because in Africa, being overweight is generally a sign of prosperity. So if you show up at the gate all skinny, African agents would just start roasting you. What is this, huh? What is 140 pounds? Have you eaten? Have you eaten in your life, huh? Are you not married? Go back to the food court. Go back to the, look at this one. Ah, no, no, this is suffering, huh? And finally, let's talk about Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, and wow, he's still governor. Oh. Cuomo got a lot of criticism last year for his self-congratulatory book about New York's coronavirus response. And now we're learning just how much money he made off of it.
2: Tax records released this week reveal that New York's Democratic governor, Andrew Cuomo, is set to earn more than $5 million
1: from Crown Publishing, for his book in which he shares his leadership lessons from the pandemic, this despite harsh criticism of Cuomo's handling of the pandemic, accusations he and his administration covered up data about nursing home deaths, and despite reports that the state's attorney general is investigating whether Cuomo inappropriately or even possibly illegally used state resources and staffers to help write and
0: promote the book. Wow, really? Andrew Cuomo got $5 million for a book about how well he managed the crisis. I mean, that's gotta make him one of the highest paid fiction writers of all time. And you know, once word gets out about this, you know there's gonna be a lot of people thinking, huh, maybe I should kill everyone's grandmas. That's a lot of money. And even though $5 million sounds like a lot, keep in mind, this number is coming from Andrew Cuomo. So in a few months, we're probably gonna find out that it was at least three or four times higher than that. Now, the news of Cuomo cashing in on the truth of how he handled this comes right as Cuomo is also fending off charges of sexual harassment. Although judging by this new training video his office has put out, he's dealing with that issue head on.
1: Welcome to the New York State Governor's Office Sexual Harassment Training. Let's start with the fundamentals. What is sexual harassment?
3: Harassment is not making someone feel uncomfortable. If I just made you feel uncomfortable, that is not harassment. That's you feeling uncomfortable.
1: That's right. People feel uncomfortable all the time. I go to the beach. I get sand in my shorts. I'm uncomfortable. Am I going to sue the beach? No. Now that we have very clearly and accurately defined sexual harassment, let's answer some common questions. Have never touched
0: anybody, any, any female in the governor's mansion?
1: Have I touched people? Yes. Of course you touch people. I'm touching myself right now. Is this sexual harassment? I don't think so. Here's another situation that might come up.
3: Now, is it possible that I have taken a picture with a person who, after the fact, says they were uncomfortable with the pose in the picture? Yes.
1: Being uncomfortable isn't sexual harassment. Both parties need to agree that they're uncomfortable. That's what's called consent.
3: Let's keep listening, together.
1: This concludes the New York Governor's Office sexual harassment training. You now have all the tools you need to sexually harass anyone in your office, hmm? we're supposed to train them not to sexually harass.
0: But let's move on to our main story. It's been a little over five months since a violent mob stormed the U.S. Capitol, took over the floor of the Senate, and passed a law giving tax breaks to incels. And even now, the FBI is still tracking down the rioters, sometimes in the most hilarious ways possible.
1: Another Western New York has been arrested, accused of taking part in the riots at the United States Capitol. Daniel Warmus of Alden was arrested last night for his alleged role in the riots inside the U.S. Capitol January
0: 6th. Now, here's the official FBI complaint, which started with an anonymous tip from someone who says just six days after the insurrection, they overheard Warmus bragging to his dentist about his trip to Washington, even playing videos of his experience that day. That person told the FBI they could hear hear Warmis talking about how he smoked marijuana inside the Capitol and how he refused police officers instructions to leave the building. Okay, look, 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 wait, 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 wait. You can laugh at this guy, but he's not alone. So many Capitol riots have gotten busted because they bragged about it afterwards, which honestly, guys, I kind of understand. I mean, how could you not tell people about the craziest, most interesting thing you've ever done. You stormed the Capitol. You have to tell people. I mean, that's why I could never be part of a heist. So Trevor, how was your weekend? <clears throat> ah, I broke into a casino vault. It was the most exciting thing ever, man. We got inside and there were lasers. Everyone was like pew, 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 pew. And then I was dodging the lasers, Then I got in and I cracked the vault. Then I got the money and I was like, bam, I'm rich, baby. Oh, it was wild. All right, you can call the cops now. You know what is surprising to me though, is that this guy confessed his crimes to his dentist. I mean, how can you be that open with your dentist? I'm scared to even tell my dentist I haven't been flossing. And what really blows my mind is that someone could even understand anything this guy was saying to his dentist. Have you ever tried to have a conversation with a dentist? All right, just open wide. I'm gonna move your tongue over here and tell me, so how's your summer been going?
2: <laughs>
0: and while the FBI is still working on IDing everyone who stormed the Capitol that day, the ones that they have already found are working on staying out of prison. Like, remember this guy? Yeah, the most effective anti fur ad of all time? Well, his lawyer has come up with one of the most novel defenses you will ever hear.
1: The attorney for Jacob Chansley, the so-called QAnon shaman who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, is drawing criticism over remarks he made when he was talking about the defense strategy for his clients. I want to warn you, this is offensive, but they are his words. Albert Watkins says, quote, A lot of these defendants, and I'm going to use this colloquial term perhaps disrespectfully, but they're all effing short bus people. These are people with brain damage. They're effing retarded. They're on the goddamn spectrum, but there are our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, our coworkers, they're part of our country. They aren't bad people. They don't have prior criminal history. F, they were subjected to four plus years of goddamn propaganda, the likes of which the world has not seen since effing Hitler.
0: Goddamn people. That's his lawyer saying that shit about him. You gotta admit, that's one hell of a legal strategy. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, My client seems like a brain-dead idiot who can be convinced into committing treason. I rest my case. Honestly, people, this was the craziest thing I have ever heard from a lawyer in my life. I mean, this guy managed to use inflammatory remarks, offend an entire group of people, and completely distract everyone from what his client was caught on camera doing. Donald Trump is probably sitting back watching this like, Where was this guy when I was getting impeached? I'm also a susceptible moron. You know what's weird, though, is that even though the lawyer used all these horribly offensive words in a strange way, his heart is kind of in the right place. Because what he's really saying is that we shouldn't criminalize mental disability, the neurodivergent, and the easily manipulated. He's basically the most unwoke, woke person in the world. You know, it's sort of like an old man saying, well, I say the blacks are every bit as valuable as normal folk. Negger lives matter. But people, it's important to remember that a mob of morons didn't just materialize out of nowhere. People encouraged and inspired these morons. And they made security decisions that allowed these morons to break into what should be the most secure place in America. I mean, aside from wherever Ariana Grande held her wedding, which is why many people in Congress are saying it's important to investigate how this happened. Although, interestingly enough, other people in Congress are saying it's better not to ask.
1: Congress voting today on a 9-11 style commission to investigate the January Capitol attack. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy came out against creating the commission yesterday, followed later by a formal recommendation by House GOP leadership for members to vote no. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell just announcing on the floor that he opposes the bipartisan bill to form a January 6th commission, as it is currently drafted. After careful consideration I've made the decision to oppose the House Democrats' slanted and unbalanced proposal for another commission to study the events of January the 6th. In a statement, former President Trump said Republican lawmakers should not approve the commission, calling it a Democrat
2: trap.
0: It's just more partisan unfairness, and unless the murders, riots, and firebombings in Portland, Minneapolis, Seattle, Chicago, and New York are also going to be studied, this discussion should be ended immediately. I'm not going to lie. My man Trump is right. How is this commission just gonna investigate January 6th when there's so much other shit to figure out, huh? Like what happened in Portland? Who killed Tupac and Biggie? Who's the monster who created jorts? The people need to know. But seriously though, is Trump really trying to all riots matter this commission? I mean, look, I'm I'm not surprised that the GOP's leaders are trying to derail this thing. You know, investigating the insurrection means the Republican party would have to take a good hard look at itself. And if I was Mitch McConnell, looking at myself is the last thing I'd wanna do. But look, investigation or not, Republicans are gonna have a hard time convincing most people that the Capitol attack was no big deal, which may be why they've made their own educational film to tell people what really happened that day on January 6th.
1: January 6th, what really
2: happened? Hello, children. You might have heard some crazy things about what happened on January 6th. The terrorist mob heard from President Trump and began storming the Capitol. A
1: violent, armed insurrection.
2: But knowledge is power. So here's the true story of that eventful day. The sun was shining and thousands of patriots had gathered to peacefully protest, huddling around that classic symbol of nonviolence, a noose and gallows.
1: Uh, It was a zero threat. Right from the start, it was zero
2: threat. On
0: January 6th. I never felt threatened because I didn't.
2: Take it from two men who the protesters didn't chant about hanging to death. These people were not threatening. They're actually nonviolent. Peaceful Americans. Their only crime was supporting
1: Donald Trump. The DOJ is harassing peaceful patriots across the country. That's right.
2: Just a ragtag merry band of freedom lovers, and you know they're peaceful because they brought peace restraints and peace spray, and they tapped this one police officer with their freedom pole. Some of them went in and they're they're hugging and kissing the police and the guards. You know they had great relationships. You know if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the sixth, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. And he would know because he was there to greet those tourists. Was January
1: 6th in insurrection, or could it be more accurately described as a mob of misfits?
0: They're like kind of solid Americans and they're deeply frustrated. Those are people that love this country, that uh, truly respect law enforcement. Okay, that's 85.
2: And that's everything you need to know about the events of January 6th. And if you have any other concerns, remember it's best not to dwell on the past.
0: All right, when we come back, Filmmaker Barry Jenkins will discuss his new series where the Underground Railroad is an actual railroad. So don't go away. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. My first guest tonight is Academy Award-winning filmmaker Barry Jenkins. He's here to talk about his incredible new limited series, The Underground Railroad, and why filming it was one of the most challenging moments of his career. Barry Jenkins, welcome to The Daily Social
3: Distancing Show. Thank you for having me, bro. It's good to be back.
0: Um, You are one of the most amazing filmmakers that we have had the pleasure of experiencing in our lifetimes. Um, It is not often, though, that a filmmaker such as yourself goes, you know what? I'm not gonna make a movie about the Underground Railroad. I'm gonna create this as a 10-part television series.
3: Uh, Yeah, you know, part of it was when I first read uh, Colson's book, Colson Whitehead's uh, Whitehead's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, um, I knew that it needed a, a certain amount of space, a certain duration of time uh, to tell the story properly and fully. Um, but also to knowing the subject matter, you know, of the book dealing with the condition of American slavery, um, I felt like I wanted to create, create a work of art where the viewer had a certain degree of control. You know, when uh, you walk in a the movie theater, you kind of surrender yourself. You're, you're held captive by the experience. You're among strangers it's very loud and very big and you kind of can't get away from it whereas with this if there's something you're seeing that makes you uncomfortable you can pause you can fast forward or if you want to see it again you can rewind every movie that Barry Jenkins
0: makes makes people feel this is a story that's that's i mean it's painful for so many people to to explore it's uncomfortable in so many ways i'd love to know when you're making the movie wh- like what's the environment like on set is it is it is it always like morose, is it always like depressed?
3: I, I think rather than trying to creep around it, we addressed it head on. You know, we had a, a therapist, a guidance counselor on set at all times. We tried to always check on one another, you know, to make, to understand that we were a community telling the story together. And then, yeah, it wasn't morose on set at all times. Uh, you know, it, it couldn't be. Because one, we knew the journey that we were on was was very long, 116 days is no joke, bro. Wow. Um, um, and, 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 and in addition to that, we also knew why we were there. And we knew that even though some of the scenes that we were doing uh, were very heavy and, and brutal and in some ways horrific, our reason for telling the story, to me, that was honorific, you know? And so there was always some way to remember to hold on to the light in what we were doing.
0: I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that the star and and, and really the face of this series is... Um, my fellow South African Tusomberu, who you have just expressed all of your admiration and love for. And you know, there's so many sensitivities around where people are from and what pl- roles they're going to be playing and whose stories you're going to be telling. So I'd love to know, as Barry Jenkins, when you choose the people and when you lay out the story, how do you pick who you think can best represent what's happening on screen?
3: Yeah, it's to be honest, I don't feel like I'm picking them. I feel like they're picking me in a certain way, or or they're, they they come in and they take the role. Um, you know, with this character, Cora, it was a couple of things. One, I knew the actor had to be strong. You right. need somebody who you feel can withstand that journey. But also, two, I wanted someone who could show me all the many facets of Cora's personality of her her heart her spirit um, and it came down to Tuso and another young woman um, who was not South African I wasn't just looking for South Africans to play this part trust me bro my life would be a lot easier a <laughs> character in this series was not played by someone who's not African- American and Tuso just she she was it man she was it and, and you know and she understood the character which to me is always the most important thing.
0: You also have a responsibility, some would argue, to protect the audience. You know, a lot of people have written about how in in, in the history of American film and cinema and television, you know, black trauma has been something that has been just freely doled out. How do you create a story where you're going, this is not just about, you know, the poverty porn of it all. It it is a story that happened and it includes this violence and this pain. How do you find that balance of, of figuring out what we're trying to focus on?
3: You know it's tricky. You know I try to be very open and listen to the conversation that's happening out in the public sphere to make sure I have, you know, I'm aware and I'm, i have my finger on the pulse of people's sensitivities. You know I want to acknowledge them and not necessarily let them dictate how I work, but I can't and I can't get in this conversation with you right now and go, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know right, people right, right, that right, stuff because right. that would be a lie. Um, and so in the course, I, I like to say when are making the show. Any of these scenes, Well, first of all, I had to curate and go, what is absolutely necessary and essential to show and what can be told? And so in the book, these acts, brutalities that she witnesses, they're a catalyst to get her to the point where she decides, right. you know what? No, this is too much. I have to go. So I decided I need to show those things. She sees them. The audience has to see them. Beyond that, we were to tell. You know, Ridgeway is telling these stories of brutality. Instead of cutting to them, we're just going to Cora's face. We're going to your countrywoman's amazing face, Mm -hmm. and everything you need to know about how that feels. Tusa was performing, you know, with with her eyes, with her shoulders. So it was about understanding that. Um, But it's interesting because trauma cuts so many different ways. It's tricky. I will say, in the first episode, when we do have these acts of brutality. You know, we we film it in extreme wide. The only time anyone's whipped in this first episode at night, you can't really see much. And then we come off the acute trauma and we drift over to the people forced to witness mm-hmm. to show acute trauma visited upon one metastasizes that filters into the whole community. That was the way I thought, if I'm showing this, what am I unearthing beneath right, it? Right, right, so right. It's always being thoughtful in that way.
0: Yeah, man, tricky, thoughtful, and uh, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many other people, masterfully executed. Barry Jenkins, thank you for the time. Thank you again for an amazing, amazing production, and uh, hopefully we'll see you again in the future, my friend.
3: Yeah, man, get me back on the show, bro.
0: I would love to walk in the studio <laughs> again, man. Oh, we'll do it, we'll do it, for sure. Appreciate you, my dude, thank you very much. Don't forget, The Underground Railroad is available now on Amazon Prime Video. All right, when we come back, YouTube star Logan Paul will talk about his upcoming boxing match against Floyd Mayweather. His strategy? Don't get punched. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. My next guest is Logan Paul. He's a podcast host, content creator, and entrepreneur who is now trying to conquer the world of boxing. Logan Paul, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. (laughs) <laughs> how are you, man? Thanks I'm for having good, me. I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. But but you you are one person who I never know how you're doing. Is is the, is the best way to put it? You know, me, Logan me Paul. Either. You've got a name that gets people reacting in in some way, shape, or form. You say Logan Paul to some people, they go, "I hate that guy. I wish like a like a safe would fall on his head from from a building." Some people, you go Logan Paul, they're like, "Man, he's the funniest, craziest dude. I love him so much. He's got the craziest gags and whatever." I'd love to know from you, who do you see Logan Paul as?
2: Well, you're right. I, 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 my name can definitely make people feel both things. Um, but I think it's because I've given them reasons to feel both positive and negative things about me. You know, it's, all, it's like, uh, either way, it's my fault. And uh, at the end of the day, I, I, just, I, I like the idea that I make people feel. Um, you know, I've always wanted to be a big entertainer. And that's the answer to your question. Who is Logan Paul? I'm an entertainer and, um, entertainers make people feel, they make people, uh, care in some way, shape or form or, uh, invest their time and energy into watching this person. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an entertainer that's living a very real life journey like the rest of us. Um, but most of, most of my life has taken place in
0: front of the camera as a fault of my own. Um, it's a blessing and a curse, man, but it's fun. One of the things that's really intrigued me about this generation, especially of like, let's say YouTubers, is it it was this like unstructured world where you had these young kids who were on camera just having fun with their friends, and then it was a bigger community, then a bigger community, and all of a sudden, you guys were worldwide superstars getting million dollar checks. And and I, I really wanna know on a human level is, were you not able to prevent yourself from getting completely up? by getting that much money from just like this crazy world? Because it seems like so many YouTubers have this story where it's like, man, when I was younger, I did this crazy thing and I'm sorry, and I did that crazy. I don't know a YouTuber who hasn't had that. So I'd love to know what that experience has been like for you as a human. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, man, I don't know how much you know about my career, but it me up. Uh, It
2: it turned me into a a version of myself that I did not like. It was the worst version of myself. which was a shame because obviously when I started making videos at eight years old, it wasn't to be a YouTuber. It wasn't to, to become famous or, or even make money. I just liked making videos. I liked the aesthetic of putting something on a screen and capturing it so my friends could watch. Right. Um, and then it captured the attention of a, of a, of a pretty large audience and I, I fed into it. I, I, I became the thing that I felt the internet wanted me to be, which, which was this like over-the-top, uh, eccentric, extremely loud, shocking uh, human, a- which you know sometimes works and sometimes
0: is the worst thing in the world. I've I've heard you once say that you think being a YouTuber is harder than being a professional boxer because of the toll it takes on your mind and your body and what you're trying to keep up with. As 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 Logan, did you ever think to yourself at some point, man, this is this is pushing me too far as a human being? Even I'm not comfortable in this world anymore.
2: Yeah, but it took me shooting myself in the foot and destroying everything I had built to realize that. Cause like I stand by that that statement. The one thing I'm really good at is working hard and I'll often overwork myself without knowing what I'm doing. Even even just right now, training for Floyd Mayweather, like my coaches have to reel me back in because I will run until I get shin splints and blisters on my feet or throw until I, I'm sore for the sparring the next day. Like I just don't know when to stop.
0: Do you, think, do you think you're trying to prove something to yourself or, or to people? I almost feel like boxing has been part of that journey for you where you've gone, I'm gonna take out this rage. I'm gonna, I'm gonna direct it into something that has discipline, something that keeps me a little more calm. I, I, are you proving something? Are you running away from something? W- what are the demons that Log- Logan is battling? Myself,
2: it's myself. This whole boxing journey is, is me trying to achieve that next level within. <laughs> I've always been my own worst enemy. Um, I, I, I am constantly battling this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so boxing, the, or you use the word discipline, bo- the discipline of boxing and, and pushing yourself both mentally and physically, which has, uh, been a journey of mine for the past three years now, is, like, really crafting a person that I love.
0: You, uh, have made either the worst decision of your life or the most interesting <laughs> decision of your life in, in agreeing to fight the greatest pound-for-pound pound boxer the world has ever seen, Floyd Mayweather. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, this is, this is stupid, it's gonna be a publicity stunt. First round, first minute, Logan's gonna be on the ground. You know, people doubt you all the time, and time and time again, you come and you surprise people. But Floyd Mayweather is Floyd Mayweather. So, question number one, why fight Floyd Mayweather? Question number two, how much of a chance do you actually think you will have in the fight?
2: <laughs> uh, question number one, why fight Floyd Mayweather? Um, my kids' kids will talk about this. It's like, generations to come will talk about this moment in history. I, 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 when I accepted this fight, understood the magnitude of what a, a special event this was. Like, you don't my turn brother. down an opportunity to fight a, a specimen that is Floyd Mayweather, the great, the greatest fighter of our generation. Like, my whole life has been overcoming challenges that have been thrown in my face and um, exceeding expectations, surprising people, doing what could not, ha- could not be done. Right. And so, uh, th- this doesn't feel any different to me. I've, I've never been in- intimidated by, by Floyd or let alone anyone. And so how much do I stand a chance of beating him? I think I stand a chance. You'd be lying if you said it was impossible. He's human. It's a fight. Anything can happen. I'm 30 pounds heavier, half his age, a foot taller, like – and I work my ass off, you know? I, I don't know, anything could happen.
0: I've watched a little bit of your journey as, as, a, as a person, as a YouTuber, as a boxer, as a podcaster, and it feels like you have expressed remorse and also a wish to become more of a whole person as you grow older. I'd love to know, for, for, for the kids that have grown up on Logan Paul, what are the mistakes you wouldn't like them to repeat that you made? <laughs>
2: This is a great question. I would I would urge any young people who consume my content to really 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 lean into being themselves. Please do not bend who you are or who you want to become for other people. Even if you've found success doing that before, stay true to yourself. It's so cliché, but often at times I find like cliche things ring so true, and uh, that's one of them. Just stay true to who you are and don't veer off the path.
0: Well, all I can tell you, sir, is good luck, man. People are gonna be watching because they hate you. People are gonna be watching because they love you. But as you say, people are gonna be talking about it. Good luck to you, good luck for the fight, and thank you for joining us on the show. Yep, thank you, bro. The Showtime pay-per-view boxing match between Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul is on June 6th. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight, but before we go, this week, The Daily Show launched our Daily Show Dogs Collection. And it's not a show for dogs, it's a new charitable line of gear for your dogs, and 100% of the Viacom CBS proceeds will be donated to Best Friends Animal Society, which works to save the lives of cats and dogs all across America and give them second chances and happy homes. So if you want to grab any of these for your pets, all you got to do is scan the QR code or go to the link below and you can support best friends and deck out your dog's life all at the same time. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, get your vaccine, and remember, if your dentist asks you to open up more, he means your mouth, not your secrets.